Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 14. You want to begin to make your way there. John chapter 14, 27 through 31. We're going to wrap up uh, this section that Jesus began, as John records, back in 14.1. And so I want to kind of hit some summary points so we're all on the same page. And I just want to kind of reiterate some of what Justin said earlier. Man, this is um, not just any family Sunday, but this is a family Sunday where new four-year-olds are in the room. And some of you, if you could cast your mind back to being four, you're just thinking, wow, that's insane to cast my mind back that far. Well, imagine being four in this room and what their mind is doing. You expect me to sit and do what now? And so they're going to make some noise. They may get up. Uh, they may color on you. And so if they do that, just say, you're a sweet and precious thing the Lord has made. Amen. Glory. Glory. If I hear you in the back yelling glory, we'll all know. Okay. Hey, I'm excited they're in here. It's a great opportunity for them to look and see mom and dad, see the adults around them leaning in and being engaged in the Word. So we're excited about that. We have an opportunity to model uh, what it looks like to be an active participant in this time as we study the Word of the Lord together. Let me read 27 through 31, and then we'll want to kind of show you how this fits in, how John has been crafting and creating this to teach us something uh, really particular uh, in terms of taking Jesus' Word. Starting in 27... Jesus speaks to us and he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he instructs them, rise, let us go from here. One of the things we have to recognize that John 13 over into John 14, and into the crucifixion, all these things are just happening very, very quickly. Now John is going to give us fully a third left of his gospel, so it has the appearance to look to us like there's a tremendous amount of time left. But in actuality, we kind of lay these things on the week of Jesus, and so they're there together. They're, they're washing the feet. He's having this meal, giving this instruction, and they're going, to, they're going to leave this place, and they're going to go right to the Garden of Gethsemane. So all these things are happening very quickly. And so when he's talking to them and saying, don't be afraid, let your heart not be troubled, what Jesus knows and what he understands for them is that they're entering a period of their life and a period of their ministry when their hearts are going to only be troubled. When they're only going to have this understanding and this temptation to recognize that everything's falling apart and everything in their minds that they've worked on for the last three years is going any, any way but well, okay? And so just know this, that in, in the moments of our lives when things aren't going well, if you look at this and say, well, what does his word say to me? Well, well, what does it say to me in the midst of chaos, in the midst of doom, in the midst of feeling like everything's falling apart? This is what he's preparing them for. This is what he's gearing them up for. Now, as we begin to look at John 14 as, as kind of a whole, I want to remind you of things that we've looked at over several months, um, because in the past, we just looked at John when we were going through the Lord's Supper. If you look at John 14, Jesus is, is using this entire teaching to prepare the disciples for his departure. And he recognizes that if they are not prepared for his departure, then they won't be ready to carry on his ministry in his absence. And so in 1 through 3, what we look in there is that he's primarily telling them that he is leaving to prepare. 
You see, if Jesus doesn't leave, then he's not able to make any preparations for the disciples. And we see this uh, just the way he opens it up. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would not have said it. But I go to prepare a place for you. So we recognize that Jesus' departure is on purpose. His departure, his crucifixion, all the things that are about to happen to him are purposed within the providence, the knowledge of God. It wasn't that God sent his son Jesus down there and said, look, I want you to go down. Things are not so great down in Jerusalem. I want you to set things straight, and we're just going to kind of play it by ear and see how things are going. That's not how it went. Jesus is the plan of God to redeem lost and wayward humanity and to reconcile us back to God. This is what he's saying. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, where's he going? Jesus goes to the cross to prepare a place for us. And if he doesn't go to the cross, there is no place for us. You recognize the weight on Jesus and what is about to be seen by the disciples. And so the question resolves, how in the world is he doing this? Like, how is this going to work out for us? We know that he's got to leave, but Jesus clues into us in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the way, the vehicle whereby we are able to come to the Father, how you and I know God is only ever through Jesus. It's only ever through Jesus. There's no, no good living. There's no right living. There's no enough of uh, true decisions. There's no enough of my neighbors recognizing me as a guy who's not salting their yard and spelling my name in salt in their grass. And so there's no ability of people just recognizing, look, he's a good-natured guy, and, 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 and he's a pretty solid guy, or she's a great lady, and she's a pretty solid lady. There's no amount of anyone vouching for me that can get me to the Father. The only way to get there is through Jesus, and so that's what he begins to communicate to them. In 8 through 12, he tells us that, that in, in, in some sense, he has come to reveal the Father, Verse 11 says this, it says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. In essence, he said, look, if you have seen me, this is Jesus speaking, he says, if you've seen me, disciples, then you have engaged with the Father. And they struggled with this. And so they asked him this question, now how do, we, how do we know where you're going? How do we know the Father? And so Jesus repeatedly is telling them and displaying to them, believe me or at least believe the things that I've done. You saw me walk on water. You saw me there at the very beginning turn water to wine. You saw me raise the dead. You, you were there when Lazarus was called for. Believe in the works. Believe in what I've said. But in essence, he is calling them to believe in who he is. Look at 15 through 25. Jesus gives to us this understanding that, that if he does not leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. If he doesn't leave, the Holy Spirit cannot come. And, and, and in this, contained within this, he has this twin idea. One, the Holy Spirit has to come. But look at how he begins it in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we have this understanding that to be a follower, to be a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe you refer to, just to, prefer just to refer to yourself as a Christian, if this is the name that you take on, if this is the identity you assume, then it demands something of you. And this thing that it demands of you is obedience. Now, this doesn't sound really great because we know over the course of our lives, or, or maybe we just call it a Monday, that we frequently disobey. We do things that aren't right. We do things that if you were to look at the Bible and compare your life to it, you'd say, oh, I'm just not measuring up. 
and we know these things are sin. And so the question that, re- re- that goes over and over again in our minds is, how then, I, how then can I be a Christian if I'm not found in obedience? How can this be true? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 16. Verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In verse 16, he says, I will ask in the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So when Jesus is with the disciples, when he's living with the disciples, when he's there with them, he is their primary helper. But when Jesus picks up and he leaves and he goes to the cross and he dies, and now we know that he sits in heaven, reigning on high beside the Father, that right now you and I, if you are a believer, if you're someone who's believed on the name of Jesus Christ, then you have a helper. You have an advocate. And he lives with inside you and he is the Holy Spirit of God. And so the way that our obedience works is this. When you find yourself disobedient to God, and so maybe for you it's not a Monday, maybe for you it's a Tuesday or it's hump day, but when you find yourself disobeying your parents, when you find yourself being disingenuous to your faith, you're living a false reality. What is transpiring? What's taking place? Ultimately, it's this. You are not submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit. And how do we know this? Because we know that the Holy Spirit is a helper, and his primary help in the life of a Christian is to help us resemble Jesus. He is driving you, conforming you, making you into the image of Jesus. And so when we sin, when people see more of Matt and less of Jesus, that's not a failure of Jesus. It's a failure of me. And what has been my failure? It's a failure of submission. And so when we see a Christian and they're going out and they're ruining their life and they're ruining the lives of the people around them, we don't look at them primarily and say, Jesus just really failed in him. Jesus failed in Charles. Jesus failed in Sally. No, we say they are living a life that is not faithful to Jesus. If you want to be obedient, let me give you a shortcut. Submit yourself to Jesus. It's not working harder. It's not doing better, not reading your Bible more, not being more faithful in church on Sunday and Wednesday in a life group and surrounding yourself with all these people. All those things are good. All those things are necessary in terms of living a full Christian life. But if you want to be obedient, only one thing can get you there. Submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Confess your inability. Be completely and totally dependent upon him and be broken each and every moment. The self-assured does not know God. It is only the broken. This is what he's getting to these guys. Why? Because he recognizes what's going to carry them through the next week isn't their sense of of just just overwhelming purpose. It's not their, their masculinity. It's not their faithfulness. What will get them past the crucifixion is nothing else but a complete and utter dependence upon God being indwelt by his Holy Spirit. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I'll ask in the Father, and he will give you another helper. And so we, we see that in 15 through 25. And so when 27 through 31, all Jesus is giving us is a summary of the entirety of chapter 14. But look at how he begins. He says, peace, I live with you. My peace, I give to you. How does a Christian get peace? A Christian gets peace only through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this? A Christian gets peace only through the providence of God and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, 
Jesus doesn't write the disciples and say, look now, guys, things are about to get pretty rough, but what you're going to need in the midst of this is a little bit of peace. And so I'm going to give you 12 steps that you can do in about 30 minutes to get peace. And so when they're in the garden and Judas comes, everybody's got clubs and torches, and, and Pete loses his head and cuts off Malchus's ear. In that moment, they say, hold on. Everybody stop. Jesus gave us a 12 steps to peace. Let's start. Matthew, what was it? Oh, I remember they all rhymed. They all had like an E sound at the end, like quickly. No, that wasn't it. How ludicrous is that? That in the, some, some moment where you're incredibly overwhelmed, you feel like life is falling apart. Your spouse is sick and facing death. You've lost your job. Everything is going wrong for you. God has not designed, he has not purposed that you pull out some list of, of 10 steps, of three steps, or some easily memorized line. What he's given to you is so much better than any of those things could ever be. He has given to you himself in the person of his Holy Spirit who indwells you, and he himself is peace. And so when we tap in to the peace that God has given us in his person, we are over to overcome. And when we tap into the person of the Holy Spirit, we are able to overcome because we are broken and he is overcoming in us. Paul begins to kind of flesh out this idea of, of what peace looks like. He does it in a couple places. Uh, Philippians 4.7 and then Colossians 3.15. You can write that down or you can just stick with me. Philippians 4, 7. Now let's look back up at 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So in, in what situations are we able to be anxious? Everybody say none. Well, that kind of stinks. You guys are really very stodgy about that. Hold on a second. Let's go back to it. Do not be anxious about anything, but, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Who do we let our requests be known to? Everybody say God. Everybody say, your best friend. No, you guys are wrong. <laughs> Don't be deceived. He says right here, let your request be known to God. Perhaps you were thinking, God is my best friend. What's wrong with you? Haven't you sung the song? But look at what he goes on to say, verse 7. He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The peace of God isn't this thing that we rationally know. It's not this thing that you look at and somebody says, can you describe to me in 350 words or less, the peace of God. You say, oh, yeah, it's an easy thing. He said it defies, it, 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 it surpasses, it is beyond. We, it, words fail. But look at what he goes on to say. This peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Where does the Christian find peace? Is it in friendships? Is it in our spouse? Is it in our job? Is it in our financial security? Where does a Christian find peace? In Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, my peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, he gives them this, this ability to overcome any obstacle. In fact, he gives them the ability to overcome the most tremendous obstacle that they're ever going to face, namely being his death, his betrayal. And he gives it to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 3.15, Paul goes on and he, he continues this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell reach, uh, I'm sorry, that's 16. It's also helpful, but not the right verse. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Now look at this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
What typically gets to rule in our heart? What's whatever we're passionate about? It's whatever we're excited about. I've gotten a new job. I'm in a new relationship. I've, I've got something else going on, and that, that preoccupies. It is the center of all my attention. It's the center of all my thought. But what do we see here in the Word? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And how do we get there? By submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. It's this process of divesting me of me, of getting rid of me as an impediment and an obstacle to God being able to move, to rule, to reign in my heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you are called. Now listen to this. He says, in one body. Now this is interesting. When we think of it primarily, and I think of peace existing and thriving and being vital in my life, I think of it largely, and, and maybe you do too, as a personal exercise. You know, somebody would ask you, how are you doing today? And we don't typically get the question of, how are y'all doing today? But in a very real sense, this is what Paul's talking about. And so we recognize that the peace isn't just enough to rule and reign in my heart, but it has to rule and reign in our hearts. Now, what's the problem with that? Many of our hearts are fickle. Many of our hearts want to let uh, our jobs or let some, some political compunction or allow anything else to rule and reign in our hearts other than Christ. And does that work in a local church body? You can feel free to say no. Now, now you're gun shy. You misled me earlier. It doesn't work. It simply does not work if there's some small faction of us or if we are divided over the place in the knowledge of where our peace is found. If you're the primary provider for your household, there is an overwhelming urge and, and tendency to believe that your peace is found in bills paid. There's this overwhelming urge to, to believe that, that your peace is found in bills paid and in, in not owing or knowing where your next paycheck's going to come from or stability of relationship. If you're in a relationship with someone, then you have this overwhelming tendency to believe that peace is primarily felt and recognized when you and your significant other are on the same page, right? And if you're not on the same page, and, and there is turmoil and there's angst and there's frustration because likely, let's just be real, you're probably an idiot. And, and so if these things are going on, then this tendency is for peace not to rule and reign in your heart, but instead for anxiety, for frustration, for fear to rule and reign in your heart. And it becomes the thing that you focus on. Now, when we focus on anxiety, when we focus on fear, we're taking our eyes, we're removing our hearts obligation to focus on Christ. Who gets to rule and reign in our hearts? Christ and Christ alone. And when he rules and when he reigns in your heart, he can produce peace in my heart. And better than that, he can produce peace in our hearts. So what does that look like? Can I just plainly tell you that some of us in this room this morning, we need to be okay not being okay you need to go to your friends around you and say, I am struggling to let Christ rule and reign in my heart. And I have sought, and I have endeavored, and I have tried, and I have fought hard, and I have posted the most glorious pictures on Instagram and Facebook trying to assure the people around me that I got it all together. But those pictures are staged, and everything I've done has been fake. And I was more worried about you seeing me fail than being caught in the midst of failure. 
in order for church to ever work, and, and this is any church, it, it requires tremendous honesty and vulnerability from all of us. Because when we encounter a lack of honesty and vulnerability, we're encountering somebody who is ultimately being false and deceptive. First with themselves and then with everybody that sees them. If we want peace to rule and reign in us, then it has to also reign in all of us, in the entirety of this body. And that's what Jesus leaves us. He leaves us the ability to overcome obstacles. He leaves us the ability to forgive wrongs against us in all of this through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So we look there in 27, and what he communicated to them is, I give to you peace. Now he caveats it, and he says, not as the world gives to you do I give. And so what's he talking about in this? Well, they would have all known and understood the idea of Roman peace, the idea that if we have an obstacle, if we have an enemy, we, we kill them. With brute force, we, we bring peace to bear in our lives. Now, I will, I will encourage you and I will tell you, if you're seeking to kill people around you in order to bring about peace, you're headed in the wrong direction. And we have a lovely police officer in the hallway who'd love to talk to you. If you're so inclined to be that transparent. Peace can only ever come about Lasting peace can only ever come about through the active role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This morning, out of curiosity, I googled how to achieve peace, and I found two articles that are absolutely worthless, and I encourage you to read them. Uh, one of them was from Oprah, and, and uh, it wasn't Oprah writing. That would have been much better, but it was, a, it was a guest person writing on there, and they said that if you want to have peace, you just need to focus on yourself more, and I thought, selfishness, that's always the way to achieve peace. And the other article, it, it really just sounded a lot like something I did when I was in, in high school. In high school, I struggled with test anxiety. I mean, just really struggled. I would sit in front of a test, and I would just assume that all the answers were C. I don't know why, probably because it was more in the middle. And very few of the answers were C, I came to find. But this article talked about just trying to you know, discover your peace. And when I was in high school, I'd, I'd gotten this relaxation tape, and the tape talked about just, you know, Breathing in, hold your breath, and as you, breathe ex as you breathe out, as you exhale, you can feel peace begin to start at the top of your head. And, and since I'm balding back here, maybe I tried a little too hard uh, back there early on. But I recognize that, that peace isn't this thing that I'm able to engineer. I can engineer calm. I can engineer calm on my own. I, I can get calm, either through a brown paper sack or some other method. I can get calm. But the peace the Bible talks about, the one that surpasses all understanding, is unachievable outside of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus is able to say, I don't give you as the world gives. If you want true and lasting peace in your life, you need to submit yourself daily, moment by moment, to the Holy Spirit. And you need the people around you to endeavor to do the same thing. Amen? So he says, I'm going away so that we may have peace. And then he brings back in 14.1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. In 14.1, the reason they needed to not be afraid is because he was going away to prepare a place for them. The reason today that we need not be afraid is because we can have peace by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in 28. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going away to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. So in 28, we run into a couple of different issues. One is the understanding, uh, this difficult phrase, or, or seemingly difficult phrase, that the Father is better than I. And let's put a pin in that. 
But look at the other deal. He encounters disciples who don't want him to leave. It's not that the disciples are sitting around saying, look, Jesus, we've been doing this about three years. Are you going to leave yet? We've been doing this about three years. Dinner was long. My my feet are clean now. When are you going to leave? You see, his departure caused anxiety. It caused fear in them. And so he's prepping. He's preparing them for this. And he's telling them, you should rejoice at my departure. Why should they rejoice at his departure? Because his departure means going to the cross. And going to the cross is the only way that they will overcome sin and that you and I can have atonement Atonement for sin, the forgiveness of sin. And so he says, look, I'm going away and the Father is greater than I. So what's Jesus on about? Is he saying that God the Father is ultimately better or more significant than Christ the Son? Well, if you read the totality of the Gospel of John, if you read through all the Gospels and all the New Testament accounts, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying. So what then is he communicating? What then is he saying? Jesus is giving us the same understanding of that he is under the authority of God. He is willingly submitting himself to God, of which he is also God. Within John 14, we see a beautiful picture of the entirety of the Trinity. In the full Godhead, we see God the Father, we see Christ the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit, and they're all working together in concert one another, this wonderful dance meant to undergird and support humanity that is fully dependent upon them. God the Father decrees and the Son goes out. He is sent. The Son returns and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells. This is why Jesus is able to say to the disciples, I will send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God, all dwelling in equality, but choosing to subordinate one to another. It is the Son and the Son alone's mission to come and die. It is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone's mission to come and to indwell the Christian, to enable you to overcome, to enable you to live this life to the glory of the Father. And so we see this delicately beautiful picture of functional subordination of the Son to the Father. Look at verse 29. He says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. This phenomenal thing that everything Jesus did within his ministry wasn't just done out of luck, wasn't just done out of happenstance, wasn't just, oh, I just happened to be in this place and things were just going so well that I turned water to wine. Oh, everything was just going great and the fellows were on the other side, so I walked on water. Oh, you know, he died before I got there, so I said, Lazarus, come forward. And, you know, everybody's got their parlor tricks and I decided mine would be bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Everything Jesus did was purposed and endeavored to create belief. Just think about that. As he's walking around with the disciples, every word he uttered, every action he took was meant to foster belief in them and by extension us. So when we read through the words of the New Testament, when we see the prophecy fulfilled from the old to the new, recognize that all of these things are there to produce belief in you. It's not an accident. Scripture has a decided agenda And that's to create belief in the part of the person reading and hearing. Your belief matters. Your eternal destination matters. And it is largely predicated based upon the result of whether you believe or disbelieve. 
Your belief or unbelief determines your eternal resting place. And so everything Jesus did was meant to create, to foster, to, to begin belief and to strengthen belief. Everything that has taken place and what it does that you may believe. Then he has this odd deal. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. So it seems to be what Jesus is saying, look, the ruler of this world's coming. We gotta cut this show short. We gotta wrap this up. But it has nothing to do with his inability to overcome. It has everything to do with the plan and the purposes of God. See, back in chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus had made this statement. He said, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So everything Jesus is doing is preparing to ultimately defeat Satan. Everything he's doing is preparing to defeat Satan. So Satan is there, and, and he's looking down, and he's already made his way into Jesus' group, and so he's already led Judas astray, and Judas is prepared to, to betray Jesus, and he's leading the people out, and Satan looks at it and says, this is great. I flecked off one of the twelve. And he comes up and they find Jesus in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, and he overcomes him and he drags him away. And Satan looks at him and says, this is great. I've got him in chains. And they beat him. And Satan says, this is great. We're beating him. We're mocking him. He's not doing anything. He's making it so incredibly easy for me. And so they bring him before a tribunal. And they bring him before Pilate. And they bring him before Herod. And, and all of these things are going so incredibly well for Satan. And he looks at it and says, it's so good out there. He had me on the ropes when he walked on water. I wasn't quite sure how to handle that, but man, I've got him right now, right where I want him. So he has Jesus marched up a hill and he carries his cross and he has him there and they lay a cross down on the ground and they drive the nails through his wrists and through his feet and they drop the cross on the ground and Satan looks at it and says, I absolutely have him now. There's no coming back from this. But there's something Satan did not intend. So preoccupied was he in his momentary victories of beating and mocking and spitting and scourging and slapping and humiliating that he never anticipated that death was always the intention of the son. To be mocked, to be beaten, to be derided, to be humiliated was always the intention of Jesus. Why? So that he might bring you and he might bring me to the Father. As Jesus told us in John 14, 6, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no way to the Father except through him. So in this word, when he says, I can't talk to you much more, the ruler of this world is coming, notice he says there, he has no claim on me. It was always in the plan of the providence of God that Jesus would surrender his life and that he would die willingly so that he might bring you and I to God. I can tell you this morning, if you feel unloved, if you feel unworthy, know this, that it was in the providence of God prior to creation that the Son would come and that he would die for your sins so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be restored to God. And he gives us this beautiful picture of what obedience looks like in verse 31. He said, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Continuing to summarize this wonderful passage, if you love God, if you love God, you obey him. 
Jesus' obedience perfectly portrays his love for God because he sacrificed his life for someone else. And that someone else is every single person who believes on the name of the Son of God. You want peace in your life? Believe. You want forgiveness in your life? Believe. You want to fulfill the plans and the purposes of God before the foundation of the world? The solution is simple. He calls each and every one of us to believe. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your goodness to us. And I thank you for the gift of belief. That in Christ you give us a model of obedience. In Christ you show us how to follow you in sacrifice. And Father, I pray that you would be with those in this morning who are just really struggling with peace. For them in their lives, anxiety is just overwhelming. That they would find peace through the cross of Christ. That they would find peace in the one who is made and designed to rule and reign in their hearts. That in submitting themselves to you, to the Holy Spirit, that you would create, bring peace to their hearts. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. I mean, they're curious about you. They're curious about Jesus. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would convict them, would show them the truth. That you sent your son to die so that they might have life. And that they might freely embrace the forgiveness found in Jesus. And Father, we submit these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.